Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In 1966, Time magazine rocked the religious world with a cover that asked, Is God dead? It generated an untold number of angry sermons and 3,400 letters to the editor. The National Review asked if it might be Time magazine that was dead instead. Bob Dylan criticized it in an interview by asking, If you were God, how would you like to see that written about yourself? The article was written as part of an investigation into the trend of 1960s theologians who were writing God right out of the field of theology. It looked at the problems pastors of the time were having, keeping God relevant in an increasingly secular society, one in which science seemed to have eliminated the the need for religion to explain the natural world. It sounds a lot like what the church is facing today, the secularism, the humanism. It's not that different, but it was a different time back then. It was a different world. In 1964, the Civil Rights Act had banned segregation, but in practice, it was still a work in progress. Communism was rearing its godless head behind an iron curtain. There was an unpopular war going on in Vietnam. Survey results in those years showed that 97% of Americans believed in God. That number has been uh, has consistently uh, been shrinking in subsequent years. In 2014, a Pew survey found that only 63% of Americans now believed in God with absolute certainty. 63%. And, and, and you know, today, today more than more ever, than the ever. number of young people who declare themselves as among the nuns when asked about their religious affiliation has hit home as evidenced by by decreased church attendance. You know, all COVID effects aside. But what about the people of all ages who still do believe in God? You know, where are they on Sunday mornings? 63% of Americans is still a pretty big number. Well, it turns out that a lot of them have simply lost faith in the value of church itself, preferring to take a more personal approach to their beliefs. You know, whatever that is. And not surprisingly, people who have been drifting away from worship are also drifting away from God. But what is surprising is that an increasing number still claim to believe in some sort of life after death. When Americans of all religious beliefs were polled in 2013 and asked, do you think there is life or some sort of conscious existence after death? 72%. Almost three in four answered yes. Now remember, only 63% said they believed in God with absolute certainty. And it turns out the less you attend church, the lower that certainty about God gets. So what do they think happens when they die? If they believe they go on, just where is it they're planning to go to? Well, you know, the largest percentage of them believe they're going on to heaven. And two-thirds of that group believe they're going there simply because they deserve it. You know, just like everyone on your, your, your kids, your grandkids' sports team gets a trophy today simply for participating. Heaven seems to have become just another entitlement. One last number uh, before your head spins off, but you got an extra hour of sleep, so it should be okay. Overall, just 37% of Americans believe there will be a bodily resurrection of the dead someday. 37%. You know, wandering away from worship seems not surprisingly, directly connected with wandering away from the very basics of the Christian faith, the faith by which we're saved, the 
faith we confess in the Apostles' Creed. Now, today's an especially important day in the church year. It's all about a new life in this world through the waters of baptism and everlasting life in the world just beyond. By faith in the faith in Christ, God's Holy Spirit bestows in and through baptism. All Saints' Day is a sort of convergence of the past and the present and the future. A day we step off the carousel of life and sit down for a moment to remember all those faithful people of God who have helped shape our lives. People who have changed us in ways that that the latest technology never could, in spiritual ways, by simply, sometimes, simply having known them. You know, people we know who are experiencing the joy of life after this life right now and are looking forward with us to the day of resurrection, the day Jesus will return to set all things right. A saint, according to the Apostle Paul, is simply a believer. It comes from a word that means holy. God is holy without sin. We've been made holy in God's eyes by our faith in Jesus. But today's more than just a day to remember the past. It's also a day to think about the future, about our future. With so many people looking ahead to the day they can finally check into their vacation locations, it's easy to get distracted from what's really going to be important to us down the road, like where we'll be checking in for eternity. I believe in life everlasting. That's part of our faith foundation. You know, when you find yourself facing your own demise someday, all the cool things your $1,200 cell phone can do aren't going to seem very important to you. And neither is the housing market or the stock market or what's on sale at the supermarket. Sooner or later, all you're going to be thinking about is what comes next. And there's nothing selfish about that. When it comes to eternal life, there's a personal aspect to it you just can't get around. Sure, life's all about sharing the gospel with others so God can work on their hearts and bring them into the family of faith. But it's also about your journey and the day when it'll be your turn to move on from this world to the next. And I want you to know that by your faith in Jesus, every aspect of that is going to be all right. I believe in life everlasting. It's one of the chief confessions of the Christian faith ever since the days of the apostles. The only future that's really going to matter someday is your future. All that God has revealed to us in his word, all that he has resolved to do and does do in this, in this life, in this time, climaxes with eternal life. It's, it's our sure hope as believers in Jesus. You know, not all but most religions, going all the way back to the dawn of time and the scattering at Babel, have held tightly to some form of belief in a hereafter. For the Greeks, it was the Elysian fields. Uh, for the Muslims, it's a kind of sensuous paradise. For the ancient uh, Germanic tribes, it was Valhalla. The native North Americans looked forward to the happy hunting grounds. So why so many different versions if there's only one truth? Why a belief in life after death at all? Well, because it's how we're wired. You know, it's part of who we are. Now, Paul talked about the natural knowledge of God in his letter to the Roman believers. He said that even the Gentiles, everyone who wasn't a Jew, was a Gentile, every, even the, the Gentiles knew something about God because he made his existence plain to them. They knew about his power, and they knew about his divine nature, he said, through his creation. It's not chaotic, it's orderly. It didn't just form from slime in a pond somewhere. Somebody made it. They knew about sin and judgment because God had written the law in their hearts. 
They had a conscience to tell them right from wrong. Every society has had some sense of divine and some, good, some idea of good and evil, whether they, they heard about the one true God or not. It's in their hearts. Okay? It's in their wiring. And if there's a, a God, and if there's right, and if there's wrong, then there's going to be a judgment one day. And if there's going to be a judgment, then there's life after death. You know, man was never created to die. I mean, there was God, that was kind of uh, God's plan A, if you would, even though God knows everything and knew it was going to happen. That was the way it started. When he created Adam and Eve, they were created in his image. Well, God is eternal. Man was created to be immortal. Remember how he explained that everything in the garden, the Garden of Eden, was there for their enjoyment, and all they had to do was take care of it, tend it. You know, they could eat from any tree in the garden, any tree in the whole place, except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, God told Adam, you will surely die. Now, it's pretty clear that his intention was that they weren't intended to die. And even after they disobeyed God, almost immediately after, and death became a part of their future, God promised them a savior, a redeemer, who would rescue them from sin and Satan, a sort of plan B, so that they could never be robbed of the hope of an eternity spent with God. Life everlasting. Some people claim that the ancient Jews didn't know anything about an eternal life. And even today, they're all over the board on the issue. Some Jews believe that death is simply annihilation, just the end of it all, darkness. Others look forward to reincarnation. Others to an eternity in heaven based on how good they lived here on earth. But even for them, this life really isn't about the next one. It's about this one and how hard you work to make it a better place while you're here. And then, if there is something after this, well, just take care of itself. But even the Old Testament is clear about eternal life. Enoch was a faithful man who walked with God. It's in Genesis. And he never lived to see death, but was translated directly to heaven. The prophet Elijah was whisked away to heaven in a chariot of fire before he died. Verse after verse talks about a person dying and being gathered to his people. Even Jesus talks about being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the present tense, inferring that, that he's not the God of the dead, but the living. Those three patriarchs are already enjoying eternal life. Job certainly believed in life after death. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. I will see him for myself with my own eyes. I'm overwhelmed at the thought. So if we have this ingrained sense of right and wrong, courtesy of the law, okay, and, and we, we, uh, we have this uh, sense of something after this life, we have something worth hoping for, a life of bliss, a life of joy. But for the natural man, man without the, the revealed knowledge of God, as he's given it to us in his word, there remains just a, a sense of something after this life. And so... People are free to make up all kinds of things to fill in the blank because it's just a vague sense also easily pushed aside, maybe out of fear that it might all be true for some people or maybe to make uh, room for some of the more pressing details of, of this life for others. Those thoughts get pushed into the corner of our hearts and the corners of our mind and there they stay, relegated to the attic, so to speak, for maybe a better time and place to take them out and think about them. The problem is once they're in the attic, Satan can easily turn a person from planning for that, that future life to
to enjoying the one that they can see and taste and feel right now. Living life to the full in this world. Getting all you can. Giving it all you've got. Now, catchy phrases, but scary thoughts if you consider that you might come out the other end of this life on the wrong side of the pearly gates. I believe in life everlasting. What's it really like? The prophet Isaiah uh, said that he saw a world where death had been swallowed up in victory, where God would wipe away every tear from every face. The New Testament is filled with promises of another place. They describe a much better place, a place already prepared for the children of God. In eternal life, we'll see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus says in our gospel this morning, for they shall see God. Paul writes, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Paul's day mirrors were polished metal, so they, were, they give a distorted image. Uh, uh, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. But then he says, we'll see face to face. We can't do that now. It would kill us, literally. With our sinful natures, we could never stand face to face with our holy, perfect, almighty, righteous judge of a God. When Moses was on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, the second set of Ten Commandments, Mary brought the first set down and people would melted down their gold and began worshiping a golden calf they made because they thought Moses was long gone. He'd been gone for 40 days and didn't come back. They smashed the tablets. He threw them down. He was so angry. So he had to go back to get a second set. And when he's up there getting the second set, he asked God for permission to, to see his glory. And, and God offered him a compromise. He said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. But you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And so he tucks, kind of tucks Moses into a crack or a cleft in a, in a rock and, and puts his hand over it as he passes by. And Moses gets a glimpse of uh, what I suppose is his, was his backside. Even at that, though, Moses, when Moses came back down the mountain, his face was all aglow, literally glowing. He had to wear a, a veil for a long time. It started to slowly fade it away because people were scared to death of him. But not in heaven. See, in heaven we'll see God face to face because we'll no longer be covered and infused with sin. Not a single sinful thought there or word or deed. All that gets left behind in this world. Can you imagine a place like that without one bad thought? The idea that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God means that they knew him and his desire for, him, for them so intimately they didn't have to think about right and wrong. Everything they did was in accordance with his will and, and it just came naturally. We even read about God taking long walks with them in the garden, Garden of Eden. Well, that was all lost when they bought into Satan's lies and by virtue of their own free will chose to disobey God and, and try it their way. That's what we call the fall of man. And because we inherit that sinful nature, that tendency to follow your own path, usually the one that leads away from God in the end, rather than toward him, uh, we'll never again have that intimate knowledge of God or that intimate connection to God that they did, at least as long as we're living in this world. But it won't be like that in heaven. In the life to come, that, that, that connection will be perfectly restored. We'll know God intimately once again. We won't be gods, but we'll know God in a way that he can only know himself right now. 
In heaven, that divine image man was first created and will be completely restored. But in this life, you know, it's imperfect at best. And the old man we were has to be drowned daily. And the new man we became in Christ put on fresh daily. Because for now, we're engaged in this constant struggle with the sin around us and even in us. You know, imagine the fullness of our joy and pleasure that day, filled with God's own serenity and a, the peace of God that, that we've never even come close to experiencing here. In a place where anxiety is unknown and there's no pain, no sickness, no death. Nothing but God's own divine light. Nothing but his perfect love. That's what's waiting for us there. Now think about enjoying all that with all the people you've known and loved who have died in the faith. People there now. Now people always ask if we'll know each other in heaven. And there's really uh, every reason to believe that we will. The disciples recognized Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, and they'd never seen, him be seen them before. They'd been gone for hundreds of years already. And yet here they were, alive. And they recognized them when they saw them. When King David was in danger of losing his infant son, he fasted and he prayed in sackcloth and ashes for days. But after his son died, he got up and he went back to being the king. If it wasn't God's will that his son be restored to health in, in this life, he reasoned, he was confident of seeing him again in the next. He said that. So we'll know people there too. A perfect place. No sin, no suffering, no evil. No downside, really, except maybe you have to pass through death's doorway to get there. Once you get past that, though, it's all good. And it's all a gift. Eternal life it was part of God's plan from the start. And he's never strayed from that plan. The gospel tells us the amazing news that eternal life is God's free gift through God's grace to sinful man. His undeserved love and mercy. Now, what an awesome story our, our salvation story is. An awesome future waiting for us. And the Bible tells us that we don't have to earn it, and we don't have to even be worthy of it. Simply believe that in Jesus, that Jesus' perfect life and his suffering and his death for all our sins earned it for us. It's God's gift, and God alone who prepared it for us. God planned it before the foundations of the world were ever set in place. And God gives us the faith that grasps the, the, the future through the waters of baptism. God so loved the world, John tells us, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Not some artificial version of it in this world. The real deal with all those we've loved and lost in the next. I believe in life everlasting. And you can too. Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's take a moment to confess our faith together in the words of the Apostles' Creed. You find it printed in your bulletins. Why don't we stand as we confess our faith together? <laughs> 